Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Today, we have Jesse Stevens, who is a Sydney-based writer, podcaster, and assistant head of content at Mamma Mia. She is also the author of her very first book, Heartsick. So Jesse, thank you so much for joining today. Hello. Thank you for having me. How was your little trip this weekend? Really good. I'm meant to get a bunch of work done. This is the case always when I have a weekend off and I completely uh, overestimate how much I can get done. I'm like, you know what? I'll just write a book while I'm up there. Why don't I just make a movie? And of course that never happens. Um, I have not done one moderately productive thing. In fact, I've just been reading, which is very joyful. Love it. And you know what? Recently, there's been so many memes and like posts on Instagram flying about how we actually should be okay with being quiet and just resting. It's not always about being busy. Exactly. How are we meant to come up with any good ideas if all we do is try and like churn and be productive? And there's all that. You kind of need to sit in the silence for a while. And so I'm telling myself that's what this weekend is, even though it's just pure indulgence, which I love. (laughs) you must be very busy though you're always doing something aren't you and content producing is big you've got to learn a lot about other people and when you're churning out your podcast it must be quite tiring it's really tiring so at the moment I'm doing Mamma Mia Out Loud which is five days a week and then um, True Crime Conversations which is one I've got the delivery room which is just a season but that's one every week Um, and then writing on top of that and, you know, meetings and all of that other work. And it just, it's a lot of content. I love it, but at the same time, it's, it's pretty exhausting. So I need my weekends. I need to reach out. (laughs) (laughs) I can only imagine. Well, today we want to talk about heartbreak and why I find that so interesting is because as you know, I've spent the last six months really exploring grief and other people's losses helping me as well in my own grief journey. But one thing I haven't explored is the loss of a relationship. And I know that you are so keen in helping other people to feel less alone in their loss and in the heartbreak, because you do say in your book how you feel that it's a type of grief that is kind of dismissed and unacknowledged. Absolutely. And that's, I'm obsessed with grief more broadly. And I think that's why I'm so interested in this podcast and your project is because we don't talk about it enough. And with the rise of self-help and self-care and everyone's an expert and everyone's giving advice, we don't allow ourselves enough space to sit in the muck. And that's what my project in, in Heartseek in writing that book was about, was framing it as the pain and the self-loathing and all of those feelings that come with it. How can we maybe create a ritual around it so that we don't try and dismiss it as quickly. And it sort of starts with when I was horribly heartbroken, I was in a bookshop and wanted a book that reflected 
the grief that put words around it that made me feel seen and understood and maybe like I wasn't so alone. And instead I was bombarded with self-help books, which I think you're, you and I can agree don't really help. Like when you've really yeah. experienced something awful, someone giving you a psychological framework, which is all good sometimes, but it's not going to heal you entirely. I think that the best psychologists in the world will tell you that you've got to go through to get out. And so that's what I wanted was I wanted to go through it in a really meaningful way. And in order to do that, I needed to look more closely. I think in mental health, often we've got the same thing. If you are someone, when I've been really low, even in, in mood or, you know, bordering on depression, you want to sit with it for a bit because you want to kind of analyze it and work out what's going on rather than click your fingers and and get better. And so I wanted to investigate what this heartbreak feeling was all about um, and see how universal elements were because for me it was bringing out self-loathing, issues with self-esteem, rejection, I'm unlovable, no one will ever love me, this confirms everything I've always believed about myself. And writing it in a book has been the strangest experience because I have discovered how universal those feelings are. And that is so liberating to go, oh, maybe I'm not deficient, maybe I'm not mad, maybe there's not something wrong with me. But when we are feeling so alone in our grief, like I know you have and and like I have to a different degree, we're actually our most human and we're our most connected. That's what connects us to human beings, not only who exist now, but who have lived for thousands and thousands of years before us. And there's something quite beautiful in that, I think. Could you take us back to your heartbreak? So I don't know if the writing of this book was from Joshua or whether it was a different person, but you talk about a Joshua and I don't know if he's the catalyst or not. So there are so many difficult, uh, to know where to start. But Joshua was one. The one in the bookshop actually started. I was um, going. I was going to Vietnam, and I this guy that I'd been seeing, and everyone I was with in a romantic relationship, I believed I would be with forever. I think there's a madness that we project onto every partner that that we have, and where. <laughs> both complicit in this, I, don't, I wouldn't call it a lie, but in this belief that there's an unwritten contract that we're both going to be together forever and when someone breaks it, you're like, they, they weren't the rules. That wasn't how this was meant to go. And so he broke up with me. I was going to Vietnam and he was going to Vegas um, and he wanted to be single for that, obviously. Oh, um, Large so trip. He, Exactly. He ended it. And I look back and it was so ridiculous. He wasn't a nice person. He wasn't someone I should have been with. But I was so tortured and rejected and just felt so disgusting. And I remember being obsessed with my phone. It was like I would stare at it. And he, I think in the book, I put it as like an empty performance for the one person who's not watching and it's like I would put these things on you know Instagram from my trip in Vietnam trying to look like I was having fun I was not and it was all for him and he was not watching and so it was this pathetic trip but with Joshua he was another one and um this is something I wanted to to 
explore in the book as well is the idea that sometimes heartbreak doesn't happen after a 10-year relationship. Sometimes it can be these romances that it's like you're in the ocean and you're just being wrapped up in this wave and it's this whirlwind of feelings and then you get spat out and sometimes they hurt more. And so Joshua was this guy I met and we went on this date and it was just the most incredible date and I went, he's the one. I let myself think that. I just, he was everything um, I'd wanted. I convinced myself of that. We saw each other for a few, probably for a month, maybe six weeks And he seemed so into me, like he was messaging me all the time and we were talking and we're going on these incredible dates and he was making plans. And then one day he went quiet. It was over a weekend, I think, and we were meant to do something, went completely quiet. And I was, I knew, and this is the thing is that it was like this anxiety laced with pain. And then he ended up picking up the phone and saying, I've gotten back together with my ex-girlfriend you know sorry and I still (laughs) wanted him sorry about that um (laughs) I still wanted him to like me so much that I was really polite about it I was like oh that's okay I really I wish you really well like I really hope it goes well and then hung up and just (laughs) cried not and then just cried my eyes out I was devastated and I felt like I didn't have permission to feel that grief because it was such a short lived romance that my friends would have thought I was mad if I used the word heartbreak I had to pretend like I was okay um and then you go to work and everyone's like oh how's that guy you're seeing and it's really mortifying to say that guy who I liked decided actually that he wasn't that into me and I don't want to have a casual conversation with you about that at you know 10 a.m. on a Monday like it was awful and and that was something I wanted to explore was those little rejections that sting and sting and sting and sometimes um, you have this gaping scar and it's like rubbing salt in the wound over and over again and I think a lot of people you know who are dating can really relate with that. I think it's so important you touched on that because we live now in a toxic culture of dating apps. I like seriously think they are so bad for mental health because like you, I went through a series of failed dating experiences because I felt so low about myself and I wanted to find the one. So I just go on all these dates and every time one failed, I thought, what is it about me? And I know that you felt this too because you say in your book how time and time again you felt well it must be me because if they're not working out it must be there's something wrong with what I'm doing exactly right and I was exactly the same and I'd and that's the thing is that in order to heal from a heartbreak a lot of people are like you've got to get back on the horse get back out there (laughs) so it's like okay I'm gonna get back out there and I'm this I've got some qualities that other people might want and you go on a date (laughs) You try and put your best foot forward. You put all this effort into how you look. You try and be this compelling, interesting, funny person. And then at, you know, often it's not after the first date, it's after a few, which almost hurts more. They go, <laughs> yeah, I find exactly the same. <laughs> yeah, exactly, where they're just like, nah, you're not the one for me. And I sat with a psychologist and I said, Look, I'm a very logical person. 
I think at the time I was doing a master's degree that was on research and I was like, if I was a researcher, I would say that I'm the common denominator here and that whatever's happening, I'm doing something wrong. And I expected her to be like, I'm so glad you came to that conclusion. Of course that's right and let's work on it. And I was like, what can I do to be better? And she just looked at me and said, this sounds to me like a a lot of bad luck. This is just bad luck. And that happens with dating, you know? And, And I think that that's very true. It was very liberating to have someone tell me that, that sometimes you just have a string of people that are looking for something different. I think it's impossible not to feel it, but I think looking back, it was bad luck. And I hope that women or men who are going through the same thing aren't that's what I hate about self-help books the one that are like his well he's not into you and it's like oh shut up it's not your fault sometimes you just you date a bunch of dicks (laughs) exactly and no one has any idea and really is them not you and even though we hate it from the outside when someone says it it genuinely is yes it's really hard to believe but you just haven't found your person and that's that's okay but it's also allowed to sting and I think that the grief what I've learned about grief is that sometimes it's the things for which there is no ritual there is no language there is no passage by which you're meant to get through it that the grief lingers for way too long because how are you meant to communicate to anyone how upset you are when you're not allowed to feel that So you look at things like miscarriage or the death of a pet or these griefs that aren't necessarily, you know, I don't want to say life-shattering because they are for some people, but we have no ritual that's set in place. It's like, oh, okay, there's a burial or there's a, you know, there's a eulogy or or whatever it is. And I think that that's really sad. I think we've got to get better at creating rituals for those moments in life that undo us a little bit. Yeah. Because what you mean is when someone dies, we have a funeral or Mm. um, like you can actually process it a little bit more, but you're saying with heartbreak, you don't really have an ending because in most cases that person leaves you and they don't want to see you again. (laughs) Exactly right. Or your family is thinking, good on you. Like, okay, that person wasn't right. Hurry up, move on. Um, Sometimes I didn't even like the person. Uh, And (laughs) we don't know what to do. I'm not sure if you've ever had this experience that um, someone says, I don't want to be with you anymore. And you are left in your bedroom with this weight of feeling in your chest and in your stomach. You're sick and you do not know what to do next. It's like, do I call someone? Do I, I I don't feel like I can eat. Do I get in the, it's like, you don't actually know what the next 24 hours are meant to look like because your world's fallen apart, which is the same with any grief. I mean, the loss of anyone is just shifts the world on its axis. And you expected that things were going to be the same as they are tomorrow. And they're not. Um, And I think, I'm not sure if you've read Any Ordinary Day by Lee Sales, but that's a beautiful book about um, basically on any ordinary day, anything can happen. And if we knew that and understood it and thought about it long enough, we'd lose our minds because you can't Mm. live like that. You'd just be in a constant state of anxiety. So you kind of have 
to believe the idea that things will be the same as they are today. And so that's why we get such a shock when, you know, it feels like our our lives fall apart. It's it's almost like we were betrayed by the universe. <laughs> yeah. And so one thing I have in common with you as well is I genuinely feel that we live in a society that is so dismissive of people's grief. We don't want to delve into it because most people are scared because whether it wakes up emotions that they don't want to talk yeah. about. And you write so like nicely in your book about how people are intolerant and they're impatient when it comes to emotional discomfort. They don't want to sit with you in it. Did you feel that in your own heartbreak? So much, so much. And I think then I just ended up not even communicating it because I I think with any grief, you're given a window by the people that love you. Um, And they might give you two weeks to talk about it. And then after that, it's sort of like, look, we're really done with this subject. We are going to need to move on. Um, And I felt hurried by the people around me. And I suppose that when feelings lie dormant inside of people, they might have experienced it before, but either they've dealt with it or they haven't and they really don't want your mess interfering with their day-to-day lives. Um, And that is really tough. And so you are left to your own devices to sit alone, to not really know how to communicate it or not feel supported or counselled through it. I, I absolutely felt as though there was a window and if you spoke about it longer than that, then everyone thought you were losing it a bit and you didn't want to be that friend. Um. And we, we are extremely uncomfortable with, with mess and crisis. Um, that's not where we want to be. And, in fact, in a, in a world that is increasingly um, obsessed with boundaries, so at the moment the buzzword is, is boundaries and we've all got to protect ourselves and if this friend isn't giving you joy and isn't giving you what you need, then maybe you don't engage with that friend anymore. I've always been so against that because. If you have a friend who is going through a mental health crisis, who has lost someone they love, who is deep in heartbreak, who's had a miscarriage, guess what? They're not going to give you a whole lot at the moment. But friendship isn't about a simple transaction. It's about caring and loving about people, like loving people, regardless of what situation they're in. And so I think we need to change the terms of friendship and and family because we're not going to be our best selves all the time. We're going to be messy and we need to draw on our empathy stores. This is why I think it's important for people who were heartbroken five years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago to remember it, to keep it in their mind so that when someone they love is going through it, you can go, oh, I remember how much this hurt. This matters. For me, no one in my life, um, like my parents had been married for a million years and my sister's in this long-term relationship. I didn't really have anyone who could quite relate with what I was going through. And it was, it definitely compounded the pain. Yeah. Because you need people to be able to relate to you. And that's what you find when you, when you are alone and then you find that one person that understands, it just makes it a whole lot better, doesn't it? Exactly. So why don't we, 
Why don't we jump into Heartsick? Because I know that that's something you're so passionate about. It's something that you've probably spent a long time working on. Um, why don't you give my listeners a bit of an introduction into the book and what it's about? So Heartsick is a narrative nonfiction book um, about what happens when uh, love and heartbreak upends a life. So uh, it follows the lives of Anna, Patrick and Claire who each fall in love, um, some in, in ways that are, you know, unconventional or not um, not necessarily the kind of love that's very convenient. And it, it follows the tra- trajectory of falling in and what happens when you're rejected. So I wanted to focus on the kind of love because another type of heartbreak, of course, is actually falling out of love with someone. But this book is about rejection and what happens when someone falls out of love with you and how the threads of a life come undone. So Anna is in her 40s and she's been married for um, more than two decades and she has three kids who she loves and she realises that she has really strong feelings for her best um, friend, uh, Mm -hmm. Rob, who she's known since school. And so she falls into this affair with him and it becomes a struggle of who to choose and what life she wants to lead. And then Patrick falls in love with Caitlin at at university and there's a fear that maybe he feels more strongly about her than she does about him. And then Claire finds Maggie in London uh, and she is dealing with her own mental health and self-esteem issues and Maggie can be her greatest um, cheerleader in in some ways. But then when they move back to Australia, everything falls apart and she finds some pretty damning stuff on her phone Uh, and it's about the fallout from that. And Heartsick was a project that I wanted to put words around the unsaid because I know that communicating about feelings it's it's very funny because I find that one of the hardest things in the world. I don't think I'm a particularly articulate person when it comes to feelings. And I remembered that a quarter of the way into the book and I was like, damn it, why did I try and do this? Um, but that's what I wanted to do for people is to almost have this new conduit and new metaphors and new ideas that they could draw on and point to and go, that's how I feel. And I didn't know anyone else felt that until now. And these people are real people, aren't they, that you interviewed and followed their lives? Exactly right. So I found three subjects whose stories um, were different, but the thing that I wanted in them was not just a straight line of, of heartbreak. I suppose I wanted to explore other themes. So infidelity, um, what happens when mental health comes into play. And also with Patrick, it was really important to me that I found a uh, man because I found that heartbreak has become so feminised that men aren't given the space to talk about their own heartbreaks or um, cry and, and, you know, that's just been something that, Women have created somewhat of a ritual, which is an imperfect ritual, which might be calling friends or eating ice cream or 
going shopping or whatever it is, but men have nothing. And the days after heartbreak, some research suggests um, for for men are, are really dangerous, a breakdown of that relationship, especially if they don't have a close group of friends um, to, to talk to. And so this was about proving the universality of heartbreak through, you know, people in their 20s, 30s, 40s and beyond, men and women, um, same-sex, hetero, just so many cross-sections. And that was important to me to really explore um, how universal it was. What was the biggest thing that you learned? What do you think that surprised you? I think that I expected to interview people who said, yeah, 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 it, it hurt, it hurt in this way. Um, it made my life really messy. But one of the biggest things I learned was self-loathing wasn't something that was specific to me. Um, the mortification in the in the wake of heartbreak, the sort of reevaluating your whole identity. I thought these things were specific to me, and there was something incredibly cathartic about discovering that these were features in everyone's heartbreak. And in fact, the greatest lesson has come since the book was released, which is that this is a book set in Australia about three very specific Australian stories. And when I realised that the book was being picked up in the US and the UK, I went, oh, this is so much more universal than I thought it was. Um, And that's been really, really cool to know. Like I feel very um, comforted. Like Jessie in her early 20s is incredibly comforted by that knowledge that she wasn't completely alone and that what she was feeling was so normal. Um, I really, really like that. And, And the other thing, the other great lesson was that people don't want to stop talking about it. So my fear was that any long-form interviewing, your greatest fear is that the subject will wake up one day and go, can you stop asking me questions? Because I'm sick of talking (laughs) to you and I've got to go and live my life. And that's what I feared, that these three subjects would be like, you know what, I'm actually over it. I woke up today and I'm over it. I don't really feel heartbroken anymore. Go away. Um, That is not what happened. These three people would have spoken to me for years and their heartbreaks were really different. So I understand if there's one who's really kind of still lost in in the crisis, but they're at different stages, very different experiences, very different types of people, and they wanted to talk to me because their family and friends had stopped listening a long time ago. And that made me realise that this is a conversation culturally that needs to keep going. And, in fact, if you sat around with a group of friends, all who might be happily married for, you know, 20 or 30 years, they would each have a story that they'd never forgotten. And so every single day I receive messages from people who have remembered about someone who rejected them in primary school or 
the ex-boyfriend, maybe they're not quite over, even though they've just had their third child or whatever. Um, And that was really cool to know is that it's not that people want to stop talking about it. It's just that everyone stops listening. (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because heartbreak is something that is always going to like form your future path. You you could have broken up with a boyfriend that wasn't the right person for you. And it sent you on to meet the next person that was, but you're so thankful that that stuff went wrong because it led you on to something better. But when you're in that moment, you don't always know it. You don't know it. And in fact, if you're truly honest with yourself, and I had these moments that I went, there was this great life that was on track A and I could taste it. I could taste how good that life was going to be and every single day was going to be fun and exciting and I was going to be loved. And I just got thrown from that track onto track B and I hate this track. Like I'm lonely and I'm going to try and find someone else who's never going to be as good as who was on track A. And that's how it feels in the moment. And I thought when I started writing it, a lot has been written about heartbreak in retrospect, in these kind of here's what you can learn, here's how it's for the best. You don't want that when you're in the muck. And I think it's the same with losing someone is that you can be told it will make you stronger whatever crap we're going to feed ourselves. But what I really want from discussions about grief is people who are in it and who maybe don't even have the wisdom yet um, because, and they don't have the lessons. They're just able to say, I'm actually in it and this sucks and I'm speaking to everyone else who isn't out the other end yet um, and just needs to feel validated. Yeah, that is the key word, isn't it? Being heard and being validated. And I'm I'm really curious to know, so from your experience and through the three subjects that you interviewed for your book, what was it that did get them through it? How did they get themselves out of that deep, dark moment? Good question. Um, I think it's funny. My dad used to say to me when I was a kid and when I would go through struggles, Um, he would say, sometimes you've just got to go through the motions. And I never quite understood what that meant. But these three people, and it is the bravest thing you can do, went through the motions. So that might be your heart's not in it. Your heart's not in going to work tomorrow or hanging out with your friends or trying a new thing. But you put one foot in front of the other and it gets easier. I learned a lot from Patrick, um, who almost his life had become so consumed by this Caitlin, who he absolutely loved and loved those years. And he learned so much about himself. Um, but in the wake of it, he, he had this realization that his life had been built almost by Caitlin. And so he was able to just like sort of put all those bricks aside and go, okay, Patrick wakes up on Saturday. What does Patrick want to do? And that might be running or it might be um, rock climbing or reading, whatever it is. He got to get back in touch with himself and become a more incredible person through it, which I think I learned a lot 
from him. He was very contemplative and I was with him through that process of him learning that. So one day he'd be like, I want Caitlin back. And then the next day he'd be like, no, actually we weren't right for each other, which is so the trajectory of heartbreak. Like you can't make up your mind. Um, And I think as well, the other thing that got them through it was a focus on the other people in their lives that they loved. And for Anna, it was her children. Um, for Patrick, it was his friends and same same with Claire. It was you You focus on those people um, and eventually it, it will hurt. It will hurt less. Do you think we sometimes get to a point in our relationships where we forget who we are, that when the heartbreak comes, you almost have to find yourself again? Is that what they were going through? That's exactly that's exactly it. You are so inextricably linked that you can't remember what you like anymore. And there's something very comforting in that. Like some people, I hate making decisions sometimes. So you wake up and you go, oh, well, my partner's walking the dog, so I guess I'll walk the dog. And then he's going to make this for lunch, so I guess I'll eat this for lunch. And you become, you do lose yourself. And there's something beautiful in that almost revolution of identity in in the wake of it. And I've seen people go through it. And I think you actually become a better, more well-rounded person. And I'm always very skeptical of people who haven't had their heart broken because I think yeah. people who have had their heart broken are way cooler, way more, um, they're often more complex but they're more aware of their they don't they don't have this idea that everyone's going to love them which is actually quite toxic so my partner has never been heartbroken and i look at him and i'm like maybe i just need to break <laughs> his heart just so that he knows he gets a taste of of what that does because it just does something to you and i think you just become those thoughts and that identity rebuilding that you go through afterwards makes you so much surer of who you are and I think I think that's a great thing that's a a really good thing that I've seen in so many people I think it makes you so resilient like Mm. how many times like same as you going through dating apps or you know you might date someone for two months and then you're on to the next person for two months and then the next person and it's this constant battle and tug of war to not only keep your mind sane but to also like battle with trying to find the right person that fits you yeah Um, and I think there's just something so like um, what's the word like life lessening about it like yeah. you literally become someone new and every time it's like I can do this I can do this and you just become a more confident person and who, and it's like who are you in the face of rejection because that's a true you that's you devoid of ego it's you with your just dagger to your chest um and and the reality was that who was I in the face of rejection? I was someone who sat down and wrote about it and just, and I had this journal and I would just go, I feel like nothing or or whatever. It's just the saddest, grossest thing to look at this journal that I kept. But do you still have it? I do. I do. I've got this black book that I still write my darkest, deepest thoughts in. And that was who I 
was and I learned that, you know, what movies do I like to watch or what, you know, hobbies do I like to pursue or, or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, that That was the true me and it's funny because those writings that I did in the wake of it ended up in this book which is just the most incredible thing so if you can make art whatever art it is it doesn't have to be writing but if it's painting if it's podcasting if it's anything that your heart is truly in some expression of creativity in the wake of pain it will be the greatest thing you ever create because it's so real and it connects you to other people and so I you know I'm ultimately so grateful for that because this book wouldn't exist without those people that broke my heart yeah exactly and and do you feel like quite proud of it like when you read it do you think wow I've come a long way because I've actually expressed my own emotions through it yes I do and I think I had to get out the other side as much as I needed to interview three people who were in the mark I needed a little bit of perspective to write this properly. I needed to be in touch with it and to know exactly what they meant when they were talking about particular pain. So I needed to keep that thread um, to their pain. But at the same time, I needed to be in a place where I was okay. And I think I am now. And so I'm very, I'm proud of how far I've come. and that I was able to make something of use to others, that that book um, had something that could offer other people some hope or s- some relief. That yeah, I-, I think that that makes me feel more um, armed that when bad things do happen, as they will for everyone, that good can come from it. And do you feel like it has helped you build a better, stronger relationship that you have now? Do you think that all those lessons helped get you to a much healthier relationship? Yes, I do. And I I know that it's like the book isn't about here's a secret of how you find the perfect person. And in fact, <laughs> this is for a lot of and and that's the thing is it's like you don't want to hear advice about heartbreak from someone who's like I'm in a really happy relationship it's like shut up I didn't want to hear those people however what I would tell my (laughs) 20 something self is that it wasn't my fault that those people were were being awful to me and I was looking for a very specific kind of person and in fact, what was hard was that I was looking for a specific kind of person and then I'd try for something different and it still wouldn't work and that was really painful. But what I did do was after a string of heartbreaks, I think this was about getting my self-esteem back in check because it was so damaged, but I wrote a list of what I wanted and I ranked it. And so I had, you know, number one, I think number one was I want someone who is kind and then I had funny and then I had, you know, a bunch of other things. And some of them were really specific, like has to get along with my family, must like dogs, whatever. (laughs) But I did realise that it gave me this new prism of when I met people, um, it might be someone who I wasn't automatically attracted to, who I would have dismissed in the past. I started to go, 
oh, but in fact, you match my list. Whereas this guy who I'm super attracted to isn't moderately kind. There's no evidence to me that that guy is kind. He might be fun and charismatic and attractive, but those things aren't on my list. So why do I keep going for him? And I've had a bunch of friends do this and write the list and it's magic. It's every friend who has written a list within six months found someone who was not their type who they fell madly in love with. So love it. that did help. It really helped. And I think it was just about taking a bit of control back and being like, hang on, what do I want? Because these last guys clearly weren't what I wanted. I actually believe so much in that, you being in control, because I think, especially in the modern dating world now, women let the men take control of whether they like us or not. But what about whether we like them? Exactly. Who cares? That was the thing. And then I ended up with someone that, you know, if I, firstly, I wouldn't have matched with him on a dating app because he was younger than me and I was dismissing anyone who was younger than me. Um, (laughs) If I met him at a club he didn't have, he wasn't this super confident guy who would have come up to me. And that's the thing is it's like, who are the guys pursuing you? Because nine times out of 10, they're not necessarily the nicest guys. So that, I think that I, I went for someone who was a bit different and found a completely different kind of love that, you know, was far more long lasting and had a way more depth to it. Um, And so I think I did learn a lot about who to look for but I also you know even through the course of that book I was reminded like that doesn't mean he he won't change his mind tomorrow or I won't change my mind tomorrow there is nothing to say that in 50 years we'll still be together even if that's what we both want um and nothing takes away the relationship that we've had so far even devastating heartbreak eventually I hope that people can get to a point where they're like, that doesn't mean the relationship didn't happen. That doesn't mean that the love didn't happen. It's this incredible experience that maybe has run its course, but it was a beautiful relationship otherwise. And you also write in the book about how people sometimes don't realise that, um, you know, relationships aren't always about lust. Like the first few months is all about like the happiness, the honeymoon period. But we need to actually realize that relationships then become a partnership and too many people try and escape it really like quickly. Exactly, exactly. And don't realize that that's part of it. So no one tells you that in your 20s. So when you're six months or 12 months into a relationship and you're like, oh, you know, the butterflies are gone. It's like, ah, yeah, that's what's meant to become companionate love. And there are some people who are just obsessed with the butterflies. And so maybe their lives will be six month relationships, which is totally fine. But if you're broken up by someone who wants that, don't let it destroy you because that's just, that's nothing to do with you. That's to do with the fact they want to chase butterflies, Um, which (laughs) I've realized too. A lot of the people I was with they didn't want companionate love, which I did. Yeah. So it's not, you know, an attack on you. Well, Jesse, it's been amazing to talk to you because I think we're both quite aligned in the type of work that we're trying to do. And especially when it comes to grief, helping people to feel less alone. Do you think there's anything else that you want to leave my listeners with before we wrap up? I think I would love people to talk about pain and hardship more 
when they're in the thick of it. I think that that is a real service we could do to others. It is really hard. It is really brave. But I see a lot on social media and I see a lot of writing about us trying to find lessons, trying to tell others what to do or giving them some path out, giving them some perspective, giving them some wisdom, and there is absolutely a place for that. But we are very, very bad at being vulnerable in the moment. And I think that when we do that, it is life-changing. 